Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The management of savagery. Conflicting doctrines. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am your host, Yagamalark, and we begin today our study of the contrary doctrines between a conventional central power and a smaller insurgent force. Before we get into that, however, I wanted to say a big thank you to our patrons. We just got a new patron just this last week, and so I, I wanted to give them a big shout out, but I was thinking about it, and these folks have supported us ever since uh, every, everything started. Like, it was the middle of the pandemic when we opened the Patreon. I honestly didn't expect anybody to start contributing at this point. And these heroes have been there throughout all of this, throughout all of these struggles that we've been having these last few months, supporting me and supporting this show. So l- really, from the bottom of my, of my heart, thank you. I enjoy doing this show. I would probably do it even if nobody out there was listening because I enjoy talking about this stuff, but it really does mean the world to me and everybody else here at the Art of Wargaming to have your support. And speaking of support, I also wanted to give a shout out to our international listeners because you guys are listening to this all over the world and that just tickles me. It, re- it really does. And I'm so glad that this is useful to you. I enjoy talking about it and studying it. So it's, it's very pleasing that it's able to get to other people and be useful for them in their lives and their wargaming. So thank you again to all of our listeners in the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, Australia, France, Canada, and Sweden. Our third highest viewership is actually under Other. So whoever you are, Other, Thank you very much for your uh, viewership as well. Again, this is this is a dream for me, and it's awesome to to have it be useful to people. Yeah, I guess that's what I would say. I, I enjoy being useful. Well, before I get into discussing the uneven advantages that exist in asymmetrical warfare, I do want to say one other thing. Now, again, I haven't been able to get out and do much of actual war gaming recently. By the time you guys hear this episode, however, I will be fully vaccinated and hopefully have some actual wargaming experiences to share with you for the next episode. And I'm very excited about that. But at the moment, I am confined to doing things online, and I know I've talked about Planetfall a little bit before. I think I mentioned it in a previous episode after I picked it up. But I've really started delving far more into it, and it's like a sci-fi civilization game. You're up there, you, you choose one of these races or these like uh, disciplines, and you are able to settle on this planet against other people who maybe have the same race or the same discipline, but you're all competing to kind of take over this planet and claim it as a part of your empire. And all of these different sides have very different approaches to how you do this. The Syndicate 
uses slave troops and a lot of arc weaponry, and that all these facts reflect in the way their troops behave on the battlefield and the way their weapons work. Uh, the Vanguard, which are the closest to like you and me humans, just a bunch of army guys who got lost in space. You know, they they've got a bunch of big tech. They they look like the Terrans, honestly, from like Star uh, Craft. And then you've got some really interesting ones in there. You have the Kiriko, who are like these bug people. And I think the explanation was that they were a genetic experiment of some sort and were kind of morphed and twisted into these parodies of the human form. So throughout this, you know, they're pretty cool. They, they run this kind of Zerg idea. But one of the, there's two new uh, teams that basically just came up and they are both awesome. On the, on the one side, you've got this one team that is all mech suits. Like, they've got a few infantry dudes, but the whole thing is mech suits. They're a very lordly, knightly kind of civilization. Everything, like, the, the actual heroes that you get can be made lord of individual colonies, which is really cool. And, it, gosh, just parading around in these giant mech suits, just, it, it's so awesome. <laughs> I, I cannot describe to you how, how awesome it is. And the other one that they just came out with are the Shikarn. And they have a play style that is completely different from anything else I've done in this game. The other ones, it's largely the same. You make army. You do diplomatic things against other people. You try to maneuver toward advantageous alliances, and you attempt to win. And all the different play styles have their nuances to that, but it's all kind of variations on that theme. The Shikarn are, are absolutely different. All of their racial bonuses go into covert ops. They're all about the spies. They're all about getting up in your enemy's business. I am winning a game right now. I've got like three turns left before I win it, but I have managed to turn the entire planet against my, my enemies one by one. And, the, and I've done this by manipulating, of course, the propaganda, manipulating their economies and what other people thinking of them, and, and just kind of destroying them from the inside out without lifting a finger, really, without having my armies, my very small armies, admittedly, leave the borders of my territory. And it is, it is really cool. It's, it's reminding me, the reason I'm bringing this up is it reminds me very much of insurgent tactics, where you're sitting there and you're trying to get at your enemy through subtle means and kind of break them down from the inside out. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. And also it's a really fun game. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it. It's a really good time. And I'm not sure I have anything else to talk about in this intro. I just, again, I'm, I'm happy to be talking to y'all. I hope the weather's calmed down where you're at because right now uh, the sky is trying to kill just about everybody in America. So I hope everybody's safe. I hope everybody's dry. And I hope everybody's ready for this next section where we talk about the uneven advantages of asymmetrical warfare. In our last section, we discussed what the, the nature of insurgency is, what kind of leads to that situation, what it means, what the different types of insurgency might be, but it all boils down to the same point in that when you have an insurgent, you have to have a central power by which they are rebelling. It is the nature of asymmetrical warfare that the sides are not even in one way or another, whether it be technology or pure numbers or both. There are disadvantages in terms of especially size when it comes to asymmetric warfare. So let's look real quick at 
the size. Let's look at the nature of that central power, which you've likely found yourself on. If you're a part of a larger team, or if you play a larger army in 40k, then you have absolutely been the central power. When I'm playing my Imperial Guard, I am playing as a central power. When I'm playing even my Space Marines, though they usually lack in numbers, their sheer technological advantages also make them a central power. So what is a central power? Abu Bakr Naji, the pen name of our writer, defines the central power as the overwhelming power that extends from the center in order to control the areas of land that submit to each power, beginning from that center to the utmost extremities. So by this idea, the central power isn't just the organization that controls, it is all of the proxies by which they control as well. So if you think about Rome, Rome itself was its own self-contained system. Outside of that, there were certain strictures that had to be adhered to by each Roman province, but they were largely left up to the governors. Each of them was, was their own area. They each had their own cultures, customs, ways of kind of doing things, but because they were proxies of the regular Roman Empire, then they were also considered a part of it. And that's what Abu Bakr Naji is saying here as well, is that anybody who is a vassal, let us say, is also caught up inside that central power. The central power has several combat imperatives that it must adhere to in order to achieve victory. Now, one would think that just having the superiority of numbers or technology would guarantee victory, but this is a mindset that has led to the defeat of many accomplished armies. So the combat imperatives that if you are the central power you should adhere to, are, there are seven of them. The first one is to ensure a unity of effort. It is not a good idea to, to have a bunch of different ideas of what to do. If you have a larger army, it might tempt you to divide that army into several smaller sections and have those sections accomplishing their own goals in their own ways. And while this may seem like an efficient way to use your troops, it actually isn't. You are wasting what you have. You are wasting the sheer weight of numbers that comes with being a central power. And so ensuring that unity of effort, making sure that if, if you're dealing with other people, you're all on board with what you're doing, or if you've got your army on your board, that you have a clear plan of what you want to do with that situation. Make sure you have a plan and make sure it's a unified one. The second of these combat imperatives is to direct friendly strengths against enemy weaknesses. And I would make an addendum to this, and that is to conceal those strengths as long as possible. As one of the greatest things in warfare is surprise. Surprise is the heart of the art of war. And so if you have strengths, but you're not necessarily revealing what they are, that can be massively to your advantage. And everybody's going to have strengths and everybody's going to have weaknesses. For instance, as I said with the Imperial Guard, their strength is not to go out and meet their opponent in a field from melee. That is, that is not the strength of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard directs its strength by having big, boomy things defended by their troops. And so they do best while advancing as one and using the troops to kind of screen for their larger things. They don't want to get into it. You know, if those orcs come up and they swarm a tank, the tank may still be able to fire, but it's compromised. It is very compromised at that point. The, the line that just got swarmed by a bunch of Drukhari 
is going to have a hard time fighting that off. So you want to be directing your friendly strength. So Tau and Imperial Guard, you want to be doing that ranged. Add mech 2, depending on your play style. And against those enemy weaknesses, whether it be that they are frail, that they are few in number, that they are spread out, that they don't like each other, these are all weaknesses. And you can absolutely exploit these on the field of battle as well. If you participate in a physical war game, you can absolutely direct your strength against the enemy weakness. For instance, having a strong side of the line going against their weak side of the line, making sure you pair up your very good players against some of their poorer players. In this way, you can use your strength to its best advantage. The third of these imperatives is to designate and sustain the main effort. So before, in number one, we said ensure a unity of that effort. So everybody's on the same page. Once you have designated that main effort, it must be sustained. Flexibility in warfare is obviously something that is called for. You definitely don't want to be rigid in what you're doing on the field because that doesn't work, especially in asymmetrical warfare. But making sure that you have a clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish and making sure that everything you do is working towards that goal. Well, this keeps you from getting strung out. This keeps you from getting overextended and overcommitted in areas that you don't necessarily need to be. Don't get distracted. Make sure that if one is going for a goal, that you are continuing to go for it. There's a lot of pretty flowers and a lot of side paths along the way. But if you've got a plan, adhere to it. Fourth, we have sustain the fight. And this may seem very similar to sustain the main effort, but in this particular one, as a central power, your enemies, one of their greatest strengths is the ability to move around and engage you at will. If you sustain the fight, when you, when you actually find them, if you sustain that fight, keep them on the defensive, this is a good way from keeping them from uh, being able to attack you somewhere in your back line or somewhere that you're weak. Making sure that there's some sort of heat being applied will will absolutely help. It absolutely helps and it, and it keeps them pinned where they're supposed to be. If you start to advance on something as a space marine army and suddenly you decide to go somewhere else, well, you have to pull out of that fight and then you have to maneuver away from it. And so it's it's honestly just easier in most cases to tuck in, to get it done. If a withdrawal is called for, a withdrawal is called for but make sure that the fight itself is sustained. Fifth, we have move fast, strike hard, and finish rapidly. So don't take time. Like, there, like once, once there's an opponent decreed, once you have somebody to actually fight, make sure they are dealt with quickly. The longer something is strung out, the more chances there are that something goes wrong. One of the practices within Balagarth that always kind of chaps me a little bit is a lot of the times at the end of a fight, if there is just one person on the other side who is a titled fighter of some way, whether they're a Mikut or a war master, oftentimes with knights, and people will just kind of make a line and engage them one-on-one -on -one in some sort of weird honor system. As a war master, that doesn't sit well with me. When I see that sort of thing happening, I just go up and gack the person from behind because that is not finishing the, the fight quickly. You're not finishing rapidly. You're, you're partaking in this, this custom that really weakens your war effort. So move fast, strike hard, and finish rapidly. These are, these are good words to live by on either side, but especially for the central power. Sixth, 
we have used the terrain and weather to your advantage. And, and this is, we've talked about this ad nauseum in previous episodes, and, and this goes both ways, of course, as well. Using the terrain to your advantage, meaning lock up certain areas, make sure that your opponent can't pass through, and using the weather to your advantage really just means not fighting it in adverse conditions for you. The central power is being impressed upon, but there's a lot of situations in which these factors can be used to your advantage. So look for them. Look for ways in order to use the terrain to defend yourself and the weather by which to move that is going to be hard for your opponent. Again, this is, this is more for actual warfare than it is for us, but use the terrain and weather to your advantage regardless of where you are in wargaming. Lastly, we are advised to protect the force which is to say you're not going out there and trying to protect that which the Jedi's worship. That's not the force we're talking about. The force we're talking about is the force that you began with. Do not waste your power on, on silly things or on, on half pursuits. Even though you have the larger numbers, a lot of the times your advantages depend on those larger numbers. So if you engage in pointless draining actions that deplete those numbers, suddenly your advantage goes away and the insurgent still has theirs. So above everything, protect the force. Do not let unnecessary deaths happen. So on the on a Warhammer game, for instance, don't just throw people at your opponent. You will run out. Unless you're playing a, a strange scenario where you get constant regens or something, in most competitive wargaming situations, it is easy to just want to tie up your opponent with bodies. But a lot of the time, that's not very smart. Your soldiers are going to die. Your little plastic dudes are going to get it removed from the board. That is a given. But you can, can kind of control when and how and for what reason they leave. So try to protect the force. And it's a similar thing with uh, physical wargaming as well. If you're on the field and you're just throwing people one at a time at the enemy line, or worse, you break in, in into a, uh, an un, a disorderly charge, you're not protecting the force. Those numbers are just going to disappear on you. So these combat imperatives are very important for a central power to actually maintain control and, and to maintain the advantages that they enjoy. The last thing I want to say about the central power, at least for now, is that conventional warfare is going to prove too rigid in an asymmetrical situation. Most of us have trained for conventional warfare, two armies of equal size or equal strength going against one another in a fairly good head-to-head -head match. But in terms of Warhammer, there's going to be some teams that cannot stand up to a conventional warfare style. If they just line up against their opponents and start shooting, they're not going to do as well. My Gene Stealer cult comes to mind. They're all about the sneaky, about choosing the time. They cannot stand in a conventional war, so they don't. And using these conventional tactics against a wily opponent, like an insurgent, will not work. It's going to be too rigid, and it they will run circles around whoever is trying to use these tactics against them. However, as the conventional and central power, you cannot fully adopt insurgent tactics. You've got this central power, that's where your, where your strength lies, and if you start breaking away from that, if, for instance, if you start moving entirely in smaller teams, the enemy is going to have local numeric superiority because they've already got the mobility. They're in the wind. They're moving around. And so when larger forces break down into substantially smaller ones and try to pursue their aims that way, it doesn't go well. Not generally, because 
Again, the, the enemy will congregate in such a way that they enjoy that local numeric superiority that we have discussed being so effective in so many battles. Let's talk now about the insurgent. We've talked about the central power, but the nature of the insurgent is a mirror of what the central power is dealing with. Merriam-Webster defines an insurgent as a person who revolts against civil authority or an established government. So obviously within wargaming, we don't necessarily have that because we've all entered into these with you know, agreements to be there. We consent to be there. But in the terms of what we're talking about, the insurgent is the one who occupies the smaller or less technologically advanced force for the sake of our definitions. And there's a lot of things that the insurgent really needs to remember going into this. Much like the central power needs to remember those combat imperatives, the insurgent absolutely needs to go in with the right head on their shoulders too. The first thing that they need to think about is that they should not lose the battle before it begins by submitting to the illusion of power. When you're looking across that field there, or you're looking across the board, and you see an enemy that is technologically advanced or more has the more numbers on you, it is easy to despair. It is easy to say, oh, there's no way. The lines are too uneven. There's, I, I can't win this. But if you've done that, you've already lost. The central power wants to intimidate. The central power wants to use its size to deter people from attacking it. That's the whole point. So as the insurgent, one needs to realize that just that size is not as big of a deal as it, as it needs to be. And by, again, submitting to that illusion of power, you've already lost. So make sure when you enter the field of play that you are confident, that you think that you know you're going to win because that will carry you a long ways. The next thing that an insurgent needs to consider is that as the inferior, quotation marks, power, the aim is to divide and overstretch enemy resources. You're not going to be able to engage them as they want to be engaged. And you're not going to be able to face them in a conventional fashion. Remember world, or, uh, the American Revolution, where the few times the Continentals tried to face off against the Redcoats in standing, blasty fashion, the Redcoats won. Because the Continentals were not a conventional force at that time. So divide and overstretch your enemy resources, make them come to you, make them spread themselves out to such a point that they are weak in individual areas. Don't attack the whole. The whole is not where this victory is going to be won. The, the victory is going to be in whittling away at that hole very slowly until you've got manageable sections to conquer. So divide and overstretch, that is one of the big aims. You want to consider that with any tactical plan that you come up with. One of the other things that you need to be considering is that the insurgent is allowed freedom of movement, where the central power has to be kind of clustered around where that power is. I think, of course, of like the Gelf, when they're out in, in really good force, they kind of cluster on who they call the bus driver. And the bus driver calls the shots, but people have to be relatively close to the bus driver to know what's going on. Same thing with the Brotherhood of the Falcon. A lot of the times they kind of cluster around whoever is in charge and they go where that person designates. It's very, that's, that's way, the way it's supposed to be. I'm not criticizing central powers or larger powers for doing this. The whole point of having a large force is to be able to use it in a concerted fashion and communication is a huge part of that. So that's not what I'm dissing here. I'm just saying that the freedom of movement is then allowed to the insurgent because they're not bound 
by that. They're not trying to remain with a, a larger team and trying to take directions from that larger team. They have the freedom to do as they wish when they wish. So use this to an advantage. As an insurgent, make sure that that freedom of movement is being fully utilized to accomplish what we were talking about before, overstretching and dividing enemy resources. And the last thing that an insurgent should really be thinking about is to be patient. Patience is one of the most important things about this. Going off and rushing into a fight, going off and rushing to your death accomplishes nothing except one more tally for the central power. So patience, patience in your flanking if you're doing physical wargaming. Make sure that you're waiting for just the right moment to strike because you have this massive opportunity to cause disruption in the enemy lines. Make sure that that opportunity is not wasted by hasty action. On the board of Warhammer 40k, the deep strike mechanic is, is used to insert troops in various places on the battlefield at various points in the game. It doesn't mean that all of your troops need to come out on round two. Sometimes they do. Like if you're dealing with certain, like certain different play styles, having that rush of people coming up that second turn can help. But there are a lot of armies that can benefit from a slow release, making sure that those deep strikes count and not just getting them out there as quickly as possible. So make sure that there's patience in these things. Do not be over eager to put yourself into a bad tactical situation. So what kind of tactics should insurgents be using? When you're on this smaller side, what sort of things should one be looking for in order to make the maximum effect of their opportunities? Well, the first one is that you must consider your weaknesses anytime you're entering into this situation. And considering these weaknesses, you will know what strengths not to put your forces or yourself up against. So the guerrilla's strategic weaknesses, they have limited troops, and resources. That's a fairly obvious one, as that they are smaller and obviously have less resources than the larger central power. There's a lot of individual factors that go into it. The training is usually not across the board here. You have people from all different walks of life who are here being a guerrilla. So you've got farmers, you've got teachers, you've got lawyers, you've got unemployed people, all sorts of different people who may or probably not have military training. So these individual factors absolutely factor into the weakness of the guerrilla plans. The operational factors to consider are that security is virtually non-existent. You don't have the manpower to really maintain security. It's hard to hold bases on that same idea. If you've got objectives or if you've got certain places to get to on the field and control, it is very hard for a insurgent to actually hold those things, again, because of those limited resources. And communication is also very difficult. Within a large central power, it is very easy to convey messages back and forth. But if you are small and desperate, it is hard to actually communicate with one another in a way that is not completely obvious to the larger power. And obviously you want to disguise that weakness from the larger power and try to capitalize on this as much as you can, knowing that they are kind of, or they're, they're very much clumped up around that main communications idea, you've got the freedom, but also acknowledge that you don't have the communication or the support that the central power will. There is a huge strength 
and meta changes for the insurgent. Oftentimes, a central power will get locked into a certain way of doing combat, or a certain weapon style or combo that they enjoy using. Think about really established armies within 40k. There are some templates that are just kind of normal for different armies. Certain must-includes or must-haves that are kind of just standard across the entirety of the community. Same thing in something like Belagarth. You'll have teams that are like, we like shields and swords, or shields and flails, or we have to have javelins on everybody. There are certain, rig there's a rigidity to being a central power or to being a part of a larger unit that can hold back some of that innovation. The meta changes that the insurgent has at their disposal, it's huge. They, they can see the weaknesses and the strengths from a perspective that perhaps central powers cannot. And so they can manipulate that and change the meta to their advantage, either through the way that they make their weapons or the way that they, what size of shield they have, what units you decide to include in your army, what kind of lay, uh, loadouts they decide to have. All these things can be changed. And as the insurgent, you're not expected to maintain anything completely. So have strength in the meta changes and make sure you're paying attention to the meta changes to capitalize on the really good opportunities when they should appear. You want to force your enemy to overcommit and expose their weaknesses. Again, this is, this is Insurgent 101. This is what you're aiming for above all else, is to divide their forces and make sure that they are overstretched. Because in that, they expose their weaknesses. Because the, the whole strength of the central power, as we discussed, was in their unity, in them being together. If they're putting out fires all over the place, they can't have that unity. They don't have that, that effort that is being sustained. So make sure you spread them out, doing a bunch of different things, because then you can attack them in smaller sections. Wolf packing, if you've got a, a whole unit working with you can wolf pack those smaller sections. Same thing with, with uh, 40k. If you're stringing out your opponent's forces, making them chase you, you'll eventually make them overstep their bounds and then capitalize on their weakness. So breaking up enemy cohesion, that's what we're talking about here. Breaking up their ability to work together, breaking up their ability to rely on their strength and size, and breaking up their ability to communicate effectively with one another. That cohesion, we're not talking about the two-inch uh, rule in, in 40k, but that cohesion is what makes a larger army work. And so breaking that up is essential. And if you're working in a group fight for something like Belagartha, the SCA, and you've got like one larger unit and then a bunch of smaller ones, band together. Make sure that you're not going against these smaller units before you take on that big one. It, I know it can be tempting. You're sitting there and you're looking at the big one. You're like, I don't want to deal with that. You look to your left, to your right, and you're like, well, there's smaller ones here. We can probably get a few kills. Let's go that direction. Waste of resources. That big unit, if all of the rest are just kind of fighting amongst themselves, they're going to wait and then sweep through the survivors. Why not? That's, that's a great way. Why, why would anybody do anything different? However, if those smaller units band together and start using these insurgent wolf packing tactics, that central power is now in trouble. That largest unit is definitely, definitely needing to, to reassess what they're doing because they've just got a very bad field position. Next, let's, let's finish this up by talking about the central power tactics. We talked about the nature of the central power and a little bit about what insurgents are and what, they, what they're aiming for with their tactics. But the central power obviously has tactics to try to combat these things. 
both sides are trying to do theirs and trying to do it better than the other side is doing their stuff. Of course, there's imperatives for insurgents and there's imperatives for the central power. Which team adheres to the smart thinking more? And as a central power, you need to be prepared for harassment. As we've been talking about this constant harassment that the insurgents are able to do, hitting you in different areas, stretching you out, most guerrilla operations are offensive. They're not going to try to defend things. They don't have the numbers for it. So most guerrilla operations are going to be offensive, are going to be trying to strike at weak points. Infiltration is extremely common. Let's think about flanking and deep strike. Trying to get in there, trying to get someplace that is sneaky and not expected, very common. You're going to deal with that against any smart insurgent force. And then as we discussed before, you want to be conscious of that local numeric superiority. Maintain your force, protect the force, and do not let your opponent get that local numeric superiority because then they're just whittling away at your strength, right? The main effort that we discussed before, the unity of effort, the designate and sustain main effort, well, that main effort should focus on either crushing the opposing center or a slow intrusion and assimilation of that area. And it depends on the situation that you're running up against. If you have an opportunity to just strike out at the opponent and crush them all in one go, that's obviously an opportunity. And it's hard to pass that up. But if they maneuver out of it, if suddenly they are no longer there, you might be out of position. You might be in a place that is no longer advantageous to you. So th there is a risk to that. The other one, slow intrusion and assimilation, of course, that more cautious approach, just kind of feeling your way across the field, engaging people as you find them. But this also gives time for your opponent to try to come up with a, a good tactic, a good plan against you. But you have to choose one because you have to designate it and focus toward that main effort. So those are the two that are kind of available, at least according to the United States military doctrine. Crush the center or a slow intrusion and assimilation. And honestly, the situation is going to be different every time. And it's up to you as the commander or as the warrior to really assess which one of those two is necessary in that situation. Either way, you want to saturate the area of control to prohibit movement. As we discussed before, one of the strongest things about an insurgent is their ability to move freely around the field. Using your size to kind of saturate things, still having connections, still having the ability to support one another, but saturating the area really keeps them from being able to maneuver properly, obviously, because they have to do combat in order to get through any area. And you want to try for encirclement. The numbers, again, rely on their ability to move and to adjust their attacks to where they're most weak. If you've got them encircled, if there's no way out, well, that's a good place to be in because suddenly their whole strength disappears and you are left with a very, very, very tactically sound situation. But if the enemy is flexible, you must match that flexibility. If the enemy is mobile, you must match that mobility because otherwise they're going to run circles around your force, which is no bueno. I've had that happen to me where it's like, well, I'm part of a bigger force. I don't need to go out there sprinting or whatever. And then slowly one person's picked off, another person's picked off, another person's picked off. And then you're standing there alone against a wolf pack. Uh, what happened to my buddies? Well, they ran, they ran uh, circles around your buddies because they weren't mobile or flexible. And it's also a good idea to keep reserves. If you've got the forces for it, if you are indeed a central power, making sure that you've got reserves to deploy where they're needed is a good idea. Even if you're not a sneaky army, 
Deep Strike is a good thing to have in just about everything in 40k, just to have a backup plan, just to be able to account for an enemy sneakiness. Uh, for instance, when I'm playing Dark Angels, I will have some Deathwing Knights just chilling there. And I'll use them for what I need to use them when they come out. If they need to support a mainline action, they'll support a mainline action. If they'll defend my backline from an opposing deep strike, they'll defend my backline from an opposing deep strike. But having those reserves gives you that flexibility in order to put them where they're needed and give you that leg up on whatever insurgent might be facing you there. And lastly, a good idea for a central power is to employ small agile units for search and destroy. This is not breaking up the actual central power itself. Remember to protect your forces, but using small elite units to search and destroy the enemy isn't a bad idea. Those aforementioned Deathwing Terminators, they're used for this as well. That is a very elite unit, hard to kill, that I like to put in a very uh, awkward position for my opponent, where either they have to kill that, they have to engage them, or they have to go against the main army. Neither of them are good choices. You want to give your opponent no good choices, no good options, that they have to make a mistake, whatever they do. But of course, this is for both. If you're an insurgent, you're waiting for the central power to make a mistake so you can break up their cohesion more. If you're the central power, you're waiting for the insurgent to make a mistake so that you can capitalize on that. And this is the nature of these uneven advantages, because both sides have their strengths and both sides have their weaknesses. And it is hubris to assume that one is better than the other, because both an insurgent or a central power can be played in a very effective way in wargaming. You just have to know how. And here to help us with understanding how is my good buddy Toto for our very first guest segment. come to the next section of our show, which is the interview spot. Now, this is a completely new section, so I'm excited to be kicking it off, and I could not be more excited to have our first guest as my buddy Toto. We go back in the sport of Belagarth about as far as our careers in, in Belagarth go back. Um, you know, I've been watching this guy improve and just become an absolute powerhouse, uh, but uh, yeah, Toto, thank you so much for coming on the show. Malark, thank you so much for having me, brother. It's great to, uh, to finally be on. I've uh, sure. definitely listened to a, more than a handful of episodes and always, always enjoyed my time spent listening. So thanks for your knowledge and thanks for the host. Well, thank you, sir. Now, uh, I want to jump right into it. And you've had quite uh, a breadth of experience in wargaming. What different kinds of wargames have you participated in? Well, primarily, I would say Belagarth is what falls uh, in in my umbrella under under the table of wargaming. But... I would say that fighting games are, are wargaming adjacent. It's the same level of, uh, of, of thought and strategy, just in kind of a bite-sized piece. More like a one-on-one -on -one fight rather than a field fight, yeah? It, yeah, precisely. And so obviously the tactics and the way that you approach things are going to change on, on, in those dynamics, as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's a, I would say Belagarth and, and fighting games are, are my primary sources. And I guess real fighting, MMA sure. and that sure. sort of thing as well, I suppose counts. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Um, so yeah, I guess throughout all of that, that experience, you will have absolutely been in situations where you were on the smaller side dealing with more opponents on the opposing side, correct? Absolutely. That's actually one of my favorite ways to fight in Belagarth is... Uh, is in that, 
in that sort of lopsided fashion. I, I, I find a lot of joy in uh, the tactical thinking that comes from being the smaller side versus the larger side and ways that you ways that you maneuver around a larger opponent to kind of make them trip over themselves in their attempts to beat you. And this just is, this isn't just theoretical for you. I've seen you single-handedly win tournaments against uh, like arrayed larger forces at events. I, I've, I've seen you take to a field by yourself and be the last one standing when, the, when there were teams that were 50, 60 strong. Uh, how do you do that, Toto? So there's, there, there's a lot that goes into, especially, so like you said, my, my experience is fighting solo primarily. I'm a lot worse at fighting in like a small squad um, or, or a big team, but, but just by myself is the way, the way that I like it because you, the, the, the great thing about having a smaller amount of people to deal with is that there is every person that you don't have on your team is one more person that you don't have to communicate with. Snap decisions happen much snappier. When you've got a huge chain of command and 30 or 40 people, it's really easy for wires to get crossed. It's really easy for, uh, you know, uh, an erroneous engage to occur or something, someone slips up and everyone has to commit to that slip up or your whole team crumbles, right? Sure. Um, when, when, when you're by yourself, you just get to make that decision. You say, ah, this is the best thing. And you go and you do it in, in the perfect timing, which is immediately. So. so it gives you that freedom of movement, that ability to just kind of go where and when you feel like you're needed and where the, the situation takes you. A hundred percent. And that is why I'm so bad at fighting with a team is because I will see that moment that that parkour instance where I get to go and 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 do what I feel is best at at, at in that specific instant um and then sometimes I'll be fighting with five or six people in in on the field of Belagarth and then I'll realize that I left them to die and I'm over here by myself again so <laughs> <laughs> But this kind of, uh, in, in the episode that we're discussing today, we actually discuss the, the weaknesses, quote unquote, of an insurgent, which is to say the person who is on the smaller end of the asymmetrical uh, balance that we've been talking about. So as the insurgent, of course, you are dealing with limited resources in that case. You're dealing with just yourself as manpower. You don't have other people to rely on. Uh, what do you do to make up for that? When you're by yourself, how do you make up for the lack of, uh, I guess, strength surrounding you? So there's... My approach changes based on what I'm facing, because being by yourself and fighting a team of eight people uh, or fighting two teams of four people are very, very different fights. Mm -hmm. And knowing when to execute what strategy based upon the way that your opponents are positioned and uh, the quantity of them is, is, is really the crux of the matter. Because sure. if you're if you're fighting as a smaller squad versus a single larger opponent, you're you, they're your whole focus, right? You right. need to be fully aware of their points of ingress on your team, what your points of egress are in order to get away from a flank safely or get away from the line safely, uh, versus positioning two separate teams the way you want them to make them maul each other instead of mauling your lonely self sure. i think is is really the most important decision you have to make is how can you either make a single team trip up on themselves or make two teams fight each other before they ever even think about looking at you 
So it's a matter of kind of casting the attention off of yourself and, and drawing other people into the conflict, whittling the numbers down and exhausting their resources so that you have then have time to come in and claim victory. A hundred percent, because that's, you know, you can watch the animes and you can watch the old martial arts films and the one person versus 50 people always wins, but but it's a lot harder when there's actually 50 people and they all have spears or glaives or Florentine or what whatever weapon combination we're dealing with. And and to the listeners, I apologize. Mostly what I'm going to be speaking through is the lens of Belagarth, the lens of this film fighting combat. Um, I know that's not always the case here, but you can assume that's what I'm talking about sure. in these instances. Uh, we were we were discussing a couple weeks prior, you and I, uh, about about this episode, about what we would be talking about. And uh, I, I was doing some, some, some thinkums in my brain, and I came up with the term Schrodinger's enemy. And I think if you are a single force or a much smaller force than a number of opponents, this is the only way that you can think of every other player on the battlefield and still come out on top. And that is, no one is your enemy until they are. Hmm. Um, the, the, everyone knows the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right, right. right. Yep. But, you know, if, if you can just make your two enemies be their own enemies and you're both of their friends, you get to reap all the rewards. <laughs> and, uh, absolutely. And, you, and you, take, you take none of the damage. Um, so maneuvering around and making sure that if someone is setting their sights on you, they have to go through a different force to get there. Keeping that distance, keeping that, that, uh, that guard between you and them is, it, it's just so important. Um, and there's, uh, if fighting on a large open field, obviously very different from fighting in a city or fighting sure. in any, any sort of, uh, like mountainous terrain or something like that. One of your favorite battles of all time, at least back, you know, when you were 16, the battle of Thermopylae. Oh, I still uh, love it. Was because w- when I'm doing a, a, a smaller force versus a larger force, I want all kinds of room to move. But mm-hmm. in Thermopylae, the hot gates, they, they were pinned in there, but the, what the reason why they had that advantage is because the enemy couldn't possibly get to their point of egress, right? right? They always had a place that they could retreat to if, you know, the stuff hit the fan. Um, and they, they, they just had that safe point of, of egress. And that's really what you need to be thinking about in, in these situations. Well, it sounds like both of you were using the terrain to your advantage in different ways. In the case of Thermopylae, uh, the Greeks used the the tightness of that pass in order to to narrow down what the Persians could send at them and therefore leave it down to just their expertise versus the hordes coming at them. Like you said, it was was highly effective. But for you, you're utilizing the large open space. You have the freedom of mobility. You have the freedom to choose your moment and be able to outrun, outmaneuver your opponents. And so I think both of you are using uh, very good tactics, but in in very different terrain situations. Certainly. And I think that in the case of of these small-scale open field battles, you can think of your your mutual opponents as terrain. Right. Because if the people that want to kill you can't pass through a horde of 15 other fighters, they're not going to, they, they can't kill you no matter how bad, how bad they want to. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you have to force those, those decisions from the larger forces. Um, because if, if, if you get engaged on and they open their back to a 50 person squad, they're going to get trampled over for what right. killing, killing me. Who cares? I'm dead. Like, <laughs> now, 
That's very true. That's very true. And it sounds like uh, what you're talking about uh, is very similar to the guerrilla warfare that we're studying in this section. And it sounds like even though you've got opportunities, you've got this freedom of movement, because you're going up against such larger forces, timing and patience sounds like they're much more important for you than they are otherwise for, for maybe other people. I, I, I would agree with that statement. Um, and the, the patience is a, is a very large part of any sort of, I mean, any fight whatsoever, right? If you lose patience, if you get frustrated, you're, you're much more prone to falling into your opponent's traps. Sure. Um, and, you know, whether you're the larger side or the smaller side. Um, so if you can just be the more patient aggressor in any circumstances, you can, you can predict how your opponent will move, right? Mm. You, you, a, a frustrated fighter or a frustrated force of fighters is, you can read them like a book. Anyone can. Any novice fighter can tell when someone's frustrated. They want to get in. They want to get that kill. Sure. Um, and so if you can get someone to that point where you know their actions, you can plan three, four, five steps ahead. And you can make sure that this bigger force of people that really want you dead has to go through the most arduous path possible in order to get you there. And I, and I know the other idea is when you're, when you're facing off against a larger force, it's not like you're going in and wading into the front line, facing all of them at once. You're, you're waiting for opportunities to pick off individuals, little, little small ways to whittle away your opponent, correct? Absolutely. And one of the, one of the great parts, you've talked about this before on the podcast, of, of wargaming is that when you kill someone, they get back up and they get right. to learn from that and they get to readjust their battle plan for next time. So in this sort of infinite resurrection cycle where you get to learn all of these player habits, it's important not to make enemies between the battles. Mm. When you get to the point where you are forced to fight someone, they're a lot happier with you for, throughout the rest of the day than if you go and you backstab four or five people in one fight. Then they might right. gun for you the entire, the entire rest of the afternoon or however long you're fighting for. Sure. Um, so, so keeping people happy in between the fights, I think, is also very important. Being that amicable person, it's like, oh, you know, it's just, it's just the four of us left. There's no one else for me to fight. I've got to fight you now. Sorry, bud. Is <laughs> so much different from someone trying, you know, trying their best fighting a bigger force and then you come up and smack them in the back. And right. make someone pissed off at you for the entire rest of the afternoon. Sure, sure. Now that makes sense. And, and it makes sense that you'd want to kind of make friends with the smaller units too. Like if you've got one big unit on the field that's kind of dominating uh, the action, it would make sense for the, the smaller groups to kind of band together and at least work together temporarily. doesn't mean that you guys are going to end up winning together at the end. There's still going to be that, that fight. But banding together with other people seems to be very important too. A hundred percent. And uh, you, as someone who has been, you know, both Urukai and non-Urukai in Stygia in your tenure here, uh, know both sides of that of that fence very, very well. Uh, because you have both been the people banding up and you have been the people banded up against. I've enjoyed both. <laughs> <laughs> they, they each have their own perks, no doubt. No doubt. Now, you did mention earlier that be, because of your specific talents in being able to like read uh, situations, move in such a way and do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, you had said that it's kind of hard to work as a, as a part of a larger force, yeah? Absolutely. I, when I was a wee young lad, this is back in 2008, 2010, something like that, I, I attempted to create my own Belligarth unit 
a very small but formidable force of fighters was what I was aiming for. But it's hard to be a small, formidable force of fighters when three of your teammates are dead and you're the last one alive every single fight. They just get mad at you because you're not yeah. giving orders. You're not being clear. Because in my eyes, what, what I want to do is I want to win the fight, right? I want mm -hmm. to make the correct decision at the correct time. And I don't want to have to spend the half a second of saying, let's go over here. Because in that, in that moment, it, the opportunity could be gone. Right? Sure. And it's the, uh, adapting to communicate effectively has just never, ever been my strong point, much to the chagrin of my many teammates through the years. And, and there's a rigidity, as you mentioned, that comes with conventional warfare or, or like two sides that are equally opposed like that. There's a rigidity of that that you don't seem to like very much. And that, and that, that rebelling against that seems to play directly into your talents as a so-called insurgent on the field. Certainly. And I think that that's kind of one of the, if, if you're getting into wargaming, if you are pl beginning to play 40k, if you are beginning to play fighting games or Belagarth or, or SCA, finding out what style works for you is going to be the best way to improve. And doing that until you become a master of that style is the best way to become respected by your peers and to become truly competitive in my right. eyes. And that doesn't mean don't expand. That doesn't mean uh, a, a lot of new folks in Belgarth in particular like to backstab, right? Mm -hmm. Because when it's your fifth practice and you kill the best fighter on the field, you feel pretty darn good. Um, and you can get good at backstabbing very quickly that way. Uh, I think both you and I for a while uh, participated in that in that fighting oh. style. Oh, absolutely. And because it, it's it's very uh, it's very rewarding, right? It's kind of a low risk, high reward situation for you because if you square up against the best fighter, you're going to die. Um, so if they turn around and kill you, you're not really losing much, right? Right. But if right. you get the kill, you're like, oh, you know, swinging around, like feeling like you're on top of the world, King Kong. <laughs> um, but you also have to grow. Um, you have to realize the limitations of your style, and you have to realize. Uh, I'm getting a little off track here. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, you've got some great ideas going, please. And you have to, you have to realize that until you can understand many other styles and you can't truly understand someone else's style unless you begin to imitate it and find its weaknesses and find its strengths, um, you're never going to grow outside your box. So it's, it's at the same time, you have to get used to doing what feels natural and good to you and taking in parts of things that seem like the rigidity that you speak of. I will right. begrudgingly fight in a line. I can do it. I think that I'm better utilized elsewhere. But, I, but I've learned the basics. I've learned what is, what is strong in a line. I've learned what is weak in a line. And I've learned how to, at the very least, be, be a mid-level line fighter, I feel like. And it, to, to truly excel at, at what you're good at, you need to learn those things. Sure. Well, like you say, if, even if you're a sword and border and you uh, love to be a sword and border, and you want to be a sword and border for the rest of your career, it still <laughs> behooves you to learn how to use a spear, to learn how to use a red, to, to learn all the different positions, because like you said, even if you might be a lineman, like that's where you want to be, that's what you like to do, learning about all these other things can only help you, because then you Absolutely. get to learn the weaknesses of those things too, yeah? And, and when you learn what... So using your example of a, of a sword and border picking up a spear... When you learn that matchup from the perspective of the spearman, things like, oh, I really like stabbing the ankles. It's super easy for me to stab this guy's ankles and, and, and hobble this good fighter and walk away. 
or you, you get good at pocket stabs, that sort of thing. Once you go back to sword and board, you can bait those things out. You can sure. say, oh, it's so easy for this guy to, to, to hunt my legs. Uh, so I'm going to leave my leg open, wait for him to overextend and then capitalize on that. And you, right, you right. begin to build up that mind game for yourself uh, to, to much higher levels. And that will let you accelerate in your career, no matter what it is, very, very quickly. And yeah, that and that's that's really good advice for just about anybody in any game, too. I've noticed the same thing in 40K. I started out just playing Space Marines. And then I started expanding my armies, started started moving into different, you know, the ad mech, moving over to the Imperial Guard, oh, then to some chaos stuff. And in learning about all these different armies, it has made me so much better at playing all of them, you know, because I, 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 I know the weaknesses and I'm like, okay, you know, if I'm Space Marines and, and my opponent is Imperial Guard, I know that they're just their sheer f- physical frailty is going to work to my benefit. I want to get nice and close and into a crush with them because they're just... But I wouldn't know that unless I had played Imperial Guard and was like, man, I don't want anybody close to me. I'm, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. I, I'm getting crushed. Absolutely. And that's there's such, a, uh, such an aha moment that comes from struggling with something that you struggle with on the other side of, if that makes sure. sense. Um, because it's, it's so good for you and your development as a war gamer to go out and lose. Oh yeah. Like if, if you can't beat a flail in Belagarth and then you pick up a flail, just take note of how you get killed every single time. Mm-hmm. Because at the very least you learn how to beat novice flail fighters, right? And right. if you can deal with novice flail fighters, then suddenly it's only intermediate flail fighters that are troubling you. And you've, you've, you've leveled up. You've, you, you've learned that pattern. You've learned what to do just from losing. You don't even have to go out and be the best flail fighter in the world. No, like you say, you can still learn just by, just by observing what happened. Now, and again, we have the, the grace that in our particular form of quote-unquote war, we get to get back up at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's just essential to being the best you can be is that, that practice, that training. Getting in there and being willing to be thrashed. Especially in small groups versus large groups. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And so you actually touched on something else that I want to talk about right now. And, and we were kind of discussing this earlier before the show. Um, you had said, you were talking about your bats and how you had had like this, this normal length bat that was, that was pretty light. It was doing just fine. And how you had crafted a... A basically the maximum size of one-handed bat that one should use, but that it's extremely light. This to me speaks of of your your pulses on the trigger of the meta changes, and they always have been. Like even back when I was observing you and you were you were getting good, you observed what the strongest meta changes were, and they made it work for you. How were you able to do that? What kind of of thought process did you have to really open yourself up to those things? Honestly, I played fighting games. Yeah. Um. A hundred percent, because when you are 12 years old and you're hanging out with your little sister or your big brother or something, and you're playing Street Fighter, and they, they Hadouken you 60 times in a round, that's cheap. No more Hadoukens, right? Like, right, it's, so, right. it's so easy to be like, oh, that's, that's busted. No one's allowed to do that. No one's allowed to do tick throws or option selects or various other fighting game things. Um, but if you just cut that out, you're never going to learn how to beat it. Right. And if it's in the game, it's in the game. And I have, I have, I don't care how frustrated you are by my fireballs, by my flail, by my spear. If you can't beat it, 
you can't beat it. And if you don't learn how to beat it, you're going to lose to it every time. And in that one-on-one situation that fighting games put you in, you need to do that self-reflection if you ever want to improve. Because it's so easy to blame the game, to blame the character, to blame the Hadouken or the Shoryuken or whatever. But once you realize that the onus is on you to get better and that you have to really view your flaws and your shortcomings as any sort of wargamer, um, you, you learn, you grow. And like you were saying with the meta and with, with my two swords of varying length, back to our original topic, the, 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 the longest possible length single arm sword in our sport is fantastic for <laughs> being a single person versus a large group. Because if you can continually create that distance where your opponents are tripping over themselves trying to get to you and you can snipe a couple legs and move the field away from them, move the fight away from them, suddenly it's not five versus one anymore. It's three versus one. And that's a heck of a lot easier. Sure. Um, But in that one-on-one fight against a very skilled swordsman such as Turkey Feathers or Moses or something like that, it becomes so much more difficult because they can read your motions uh, you're so much more telegraphed with that longer sword. Um, no matter how light and fast it is, it's just easier to block for a very skilled skilled shieldsman. But in terms of dealing with groups, it really helps you manage your, the numbers that are actually coming after you. It, re- it really does. Having, having that range, creating that frustration, making them come to you, is, is, it's, it is the base of being the smaller versus the larger uh, on, in Belagarth at the very least. Um, but that's also, also in real life, right? Because also in, in an actual, in an actual war, if you are making your opponent who is much larger than you come to you, but you are able to not be cornered, you are able to constantly frustrate them. Um, you're going to have the advantage. They're going to create advantage advantages for you and having that range in, in a, in a real world, real world situation is it's, it's everything. Absolutely. You know, the the larger power often finds itself too comfortable in the fact that it is large, just thinking that that size or that that whatever uh, technology that they have will save them, that it is the the end all of end alls on a field. But you have shown several times to my own eyes that that's not true. The, The size of your team does not guarantee victory if you've got somebody who is smart and who is uh, adapting the field to their uh, to their needs. You know, you're, you're not, you're not fighting their game. You're fighting your game. And you're making them fight your game as well. Taking advantage of that complacency is, oh, oh my goodness. Chef's kiss. One of my favorite moments of all time. It involves, involves that sort of thing from a a chaos wars fight. I won't, I won't bore you all with the 30 minute tale or anything like that, but, uh, having, having a much larger force slowly get whittled and whittled and whittled away because they don't, they don't care about you. Or, or they're they're taking a smaller force too lightly is it's it's a true joy, from the sure. stance of the insurgent. <laughs> so obviously you're trying to get your opponent to make a mistake, overextend themselves, or or waste their resources in some way. What are some techniques that you've noticed from larger teams that kind of shut down what you're doing? What can a, a larger group do that kind of works against the technique that you use? Make me come to them. Mm. I can't fight fifteen people at the same time. I can fight 14 people one at a time. That's, I think that's my record. 14 on one, I think, is my record. And I didn't charge into the middle of them, you know? I didn't, uh, I didn't take on five of them at a time or anything like that. I, I, I kited away. I made sure that they were coming at me single file, that I was 
hitting one weaker swordsman than me at a time until I got to, you know, the, the, the final bosses or, or, or what have you. Sure. Um, but if, if you don't come to me, if you don't play my game, I can't, I don't have the power to force you to play my game outside of irritating you, outside of manipulating another team into crashing into you. Um, if you stay put, there's not much I can do. Because if, if my goal on in, in Wargaming is to eliminate your team and you make your team as bulky as possible and give, give me as little openings as possible, I can't do anything. The only way that I can beat you is by bringing you to me, making sure that every fight happens on my terms. And if a single one does not occur that way, then the whole house of cards comes falling down. Sure. Now, in a lot of uh, in a lot of game types, most game types, the, the the battle isn't over until one side wins or the other one doesn't. So what I'm seeing is perhaps you know the larger side basically castling up, asking you to come to them. I don't think that you have the the tactical fog of mind to actually give in to that tactic. So that becomes a stalemate. You and this other team staring off. What can that larger team proactively do? That, that might have a chance against you, not just stringing themselves out, trying to get themselves killed individually, Romani Kenshin style, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, you know, what, what could that team actually do that would be effective? So in, in the context of Belagarth, uh, utilizing what we call the edge of the world or the, the boundaries of the fight, um, if I can control as an insurgent the edge of the world, then everything inside of it is mine. The second I have lost control of the boundaries that I am allowed to, to run amok inside, the second I am contained, a, sm a larger force just gets to, to, you know, big fish, small fish, chomp me down. Absolutely. So if they actually have the patience to go for an encirclement, that's kind of what we're looking for there. Exactly. To, to just walk me down. And, and there's, there's, there's different scenarios. There's different fights every, every time. Um, the reason why I'm fighting someone is also going to factor into uh, the way that I approach them or the way that I approach the fight as a whole. Because sure. if, we're at if we're at Chaos Wars, if we're at some large event and I'm fighting for banner points, I don't care who's bored on the sidelines. I don't care how frustrated you are with me. I'm not going into that team. <laughs> I'm making them come to me. I'm getting those points. I don't care. Sure. If we're at a Sunday practice and I've got 15 people waiting for me to die so that we can play the next game and I'm and I don't want to make them wait for half an hour, okay. totally different. I'll, yeah. I'll go. I'll go do it. Um, so so recognizing also and that's that's a tactic, right? right? Recognizing that someone doesn't want to delay the game for everyone else can be a way for you to win the battle. Sure. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we've come to the end of our segment here, but Toto, thank you so much for being on. I think you've offered quite a bit of insight into this subject. Malark, thank you so much. It is always good to uh, have a conversation with one of my best old friends, and uh, I'm honored to have been a guest on the podcast. Well, I'm looking forward to when we can actually hang out in person, which shouldn't be too long, sir. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank the Lord for the vaccines which are being administered. Amen. All right, well, if you guys will stay tuned, we're going to move into the battle section next, where I talk about an intro to the Soviet-Afghan War. A 
thank you again to Toto for coming on the show. I, I thought that he would be absolutely perfect for this particular section, as he knows uh, so much, and I've seen him practice tactically what we were talking about, and he did not disappoint. Uh, his insight into some of these things is very useful, and I would recommend that anybody listening to this definitely take what he said seriously. But now we're moving on into the Soviet-Afghan War. And I know in previous series, we have done one battle per episode, and those battles were disparate from all different eras of civilization, from all types of different conflicts. These battles have been chosen to illustrate a particular point being made in that episode. This series is a little bit more different because of the overarching themes of the book that we are studying and the nuances of the kind of combat that we are studying. Instead of doing an individual battle per episode, I'm going to cover the Soviet-Afghan war over the course of the next several episodes. And in this way, we can kind of understand the way that insurgency works and what it looks like in an actual global situation, because we're still feeling the impacts of this war even today. It wasn't over that long ago, and so it's, it's, it's much easier to study it than it is other wars and really to analyze it. So I invite you to join me as we start to really look in to the Soviet-Afghan war. And I want to go into a little bit more detail about the political nature of what we were walking into here. But suffice for this episode, we're going to start in 1978, when the Communist Party of, of Afghanistan, itself having bitter internal divisions, takes power and institutes a series of dramatic reforms that are deeply resented by traditionalist and rural peoples. And this drives most of the country into open rebellion. Violent suppression of dissent and execution of political prisoners, we see a formation of armed anti-government groups popping up after this. Amin emerges as the head of the state, and he seems receptive to U.S. influence. So remember, this Communist Party takes power, but it itself is not wholly united. There's a lot of, of divided factions who think different things about how everything should be run. Amin was the guy who kind of emerges through a a very, very fun and uh, dark little episode. We're going to go into that a little bit more in the future. Um, but yeah, so he's he's in charge. He's in charge of the Afghanistan. And in this particular case, it is the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan is what they're being called at this point. So, Amin being receptive to U.S. influence, this really bothers the Soviet Union because the Afghanistan is extremely close to the other stands, which were a part of the Soviet Union, and having that kind of proxy really wasn't comfortable with them. And so their troops deployed in December 1979, crossing the border and staging a coup in Kabul that led in the, to the assassination of Amin and the installing of a loyalist into that position, a Soviet loyalist who was going to definitely go along with Soviet interests. Now, depending on who you were, in the world for this. It was either called an invasion or a supporting action. Whichever it was is not important to this show. What matters is that Soviet troops were deployed into Afghanistan and kind of seized control of the government, or at least helped different government officials seize control of the government, however you want to see it. Their easy occupation did not last long though. All throughout 1980, there was increasing international pressure against the Soviet Union, telling them to get out of Afghanistan. And during this whole time, remember those armed anti-government groups that I had talked about? Well, they're growing in strength, and they're receiving aid 
internationally from folks. So let's break this down real quick. These groups are kind of grouped into the term Mujahideen. And the Mujahideen were the collective insurgent groups that were fighting the Soviet Union and the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, the government of that. But they were themselves very disparate. Much like when we were talking about the Bay of Pigs and Castro's revolution, there were a lot of different forces that were at play when Castro came to power. Not everybody was happy with Castro. There were capitalist elements that were not happy with Castro. Communist elements that didn't think he went far enough. So there was this, this unsteadiness. And for the revolution, it was all over the place. The French Revolution was the same way. We think about Robespierre just kind of leading this, this reign of terror, but that, that wasn't what happened. Robespierre was a part of a larger movement that included several smaller factions that were either not associated with him or even downright hostile. And that was the same thing here. You had the Sunni Mujahideen, the Mujahideen that were associated with the Sunni part of the Islamic faith. And you had roughly nine groups that were being backed by Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, the US, China, the UK, Egypt, and West Germany. So these guys were receiving a lot of funding, a lot of training, a lot of explosives in order to combat against the Soviet troops. This was absolutely a proxy war, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that, but this war was being fought as a proxy war. Of course, the Cold War was going on. The Western powers were struggling against the Soviet Union. So much like Korea or Vietnam, this war wasn't actually between Afghanistan and the Soviets. It was between the Soviets the Afghans, and anybody else who wanted to help them. Anybody who had a dog in that fight, which just about anybody, Afghanistan is in a very, very, very strategic part of the world. You have access to West Asia, you have access to East Asia, you have access to some of the most important and powerful countries of that region. Afghanistan is very important. So you had nine groups that were packed by those, those various folks. The Shia Mujahideen, you had about eight groups that were backed exclusively by Iran. Now, Iran, of course, is Shia dominant in terms of religion, so it makes sense that they would be backing this Mujahideen. I need to look into it more, but I don't understand why the Shia Mujahideen have so much less support than the Sunni did. They were still obviously effective because this insurgency was very effective. I mean, look at your maps. Does Russia still occupy Afghanistan? Does the Soviet Union still exist? I think you got your answer right there. And there was one other faction. Now remember that this was the Communist Party that had come to power, right? There were Maoist factions, again, much like in the, in the Castro situation, who didn't think that the reforms went far enough. They didn't think that they were promoting the kind of values that the Communist Party should. And there were about three groups that were backed by the Revolutionary Internationalist Movement, which was based out of France. So you had all this different funding, all these different people who were pouring in support for this insurgency. And as we had talked about last episode, this is one of the things that insurgency is trying for. As an insurgent, you want to get the, the opinion of the world on your side. You wanna make sure that people want to support you because that's, that's what happened here. You had so much material that were going into these folks and it really helped make them successful. So the Soviet troops, they had arrived in 1979 at the very tail end. And they had only expected to stay for six months to stabilize the new government. And in doing so, they had occupied the cities and the major communications centers. The insurgents, on the other hand, occupied the countryside. And Afghanistan, if you haven't seen pictures or been there yourself, it is a very harsh and unforgiving land. 
You have differences between extreme cold and extreme heat. The mountains are are gigantic and, and cragged and all over the place, hard to navigate, hard to understand where you are in relation to anything else, and hard to keep track of an enemy. So, the Soviet efforts to secure and stabilize this region, they're met with grim resistance. Not only do you have the Mujahideen who are fighting tooth and nail against the Soviets, but you also have the terrain itself. The, the Soviets were still armed largely with the same sort of stuff they would have been armed for the previous wars as well. The same thing that would have been used largely in, in the world wars were still being functioned here, especially the tactics, especially the ideas there. And so you have this extremely hard to navigate region that they're still trying to control with tanks and artillery. Well, it wasn't until relatively recently that we started to be able to function at all in there, and it's with attack helicopters. And that even then, we can't secure and hold. We can make attacks against people, but actually securing and holding anything in the Afghan wilderness, it's really hard, as the Soviets were going to learn throughout the course of this war. They were only supposed to be there for six months, and they ended up being there for nine years, one month, three weeks, and one day between the 24th of December, 1979, and the 15th of February, 18, or 18, right, 1989, over which the Soviet Union would commit 620,000 troops. Now, they weren't all there at one time. There was only 1,000 or 115,000 at the peak, but that is the number of forces that were committed to this action over the course of these nine years. The Afghan government itself had 65,000 at its peak. These are staggering numbers to be employed into one tactical area. And the insurgents had somewhere between 200,000 and 250,000. So easily a third of the forces that they were going against. And somehow they managed to squeak out a victory. And I know with all that international aid and all that training that they received, that it seemed easier for them to squeeze out a victory. But remember, they're going against one of the most preeminent military forces on the planet. The Soviet army at that time was respected and feared for its power and size. And by the time these insurgents were done with them, they had made a mockery of those strengths. So, in future episodes, we are going to be exploring the Soviet-Afghan War and what it means and what these different tactics were that the insurgents used in various situations. So, I'm, I'm excited about this study, and I hope you are too. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.